Welcome to Radical Remembering with psychologist Dr. Narissa and Dr. Buki. This is a weekly conversation where we explore the ways we've internalized oppression and consider what it really means to be liberated. Each episode will leave you with intimate knowledge of the liberation process, sprinkle a little healing magic, and leave you with wisdom for your journey. What's going on, y'all? Welcome back. We're excited to be here with y'all. So today's topic that we're going to get into is exploring each of our personal processes of liberation and degenification. So in essence, what has your personal process of liberation or degenification been like? So Narissa, I think you should start um, talking about your, your story. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. So we started to talk about it in the last podcast. I would say that it's not a linear process. Um, calling that to our attention because in Eurocentric te- teaching models, we're taught to think stage processes, like it's this and it's that, then it's the other, and it, that it happens linear. But I would say that even though some of it might be linear, that it is a circular kind of process that we come back to some lessons to be able to like live and to master it. Because I can say that over the, the last couple of years, that's what it's looked like for me. But there have been like very pivotal points for me. So for example, I started to tell the story in one of our last episodes where I was in the staff meeting and then I began to tell them like I came you know, I was at, I had left one school and I was teaching now at NYU and I was after five years and I'm telling them I came basically thinking that I can learn and grow and all those things from, you know, being in their, in their presence, because they're like, most of them are like celebrity psychologists really known in the field and well-respected. Right. And so what I found then is that I was completely invisible to them. Like I could be in the elevator and say hi to them. They, they, and even there were times when I was the only person in the elevator. So you, you didn't hear me say hi, you know, and there was still like no response and different things like that. And so I told them that this is right after George Floyd, when we, when our chair was attempting to lead us into a discussion and thinking about how does race play out here? Like we're thinking about how to better stuff for our students, but how does it work out among faculty? And so after that summer, after that conversation and that being really liberating because it was involved activating voice and part of liberation is activating your voice, right? And so coming back to this space of feeling your own agency through that, pro- through that action, right? And so that whole time, I really began to think in a new and different way about my worth and my worth within that system. And so it began, I, I changed from thinking they were, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm so blessed to be in their presence. No, you're so blessed to be in my presence. Do you know who I am? Right. And so that was the beginning of, you know, another phase of my liberation journey. But I, I, I think that each of our liberation journeys will involve some sort of encounter experience where we are really evaluating and thinking in new and different ways about those, those processes. Right. And so it has also then been after after becoming that much more intentional. And that is around the time that I really began thinking and using like every day in, in conversation with other, other faculty of color, women of color that I was close with. Like, are you practicing your liberation? This is an opportunity to practice your liberation. Oh, not today. Old Narissa, yeah. To this Narissa, no. You know what I mean? And so every day I was critically thinking about whether or not I was being complicit in my own oppression, right? So they didn't have to do it because I was doing it for them. I was shutting myself up. I was bowing out of the conversation or just tired, you know, and rightfully so because racial trauma is real. 
but really thinking critically about how I was going to interrupt and dismantle harmful dynamics to myself and other people like me, you know, whether they were black or women of color and different things like that. And so it's still, I don't, I don't think it's a process that ends because we've been socialized, you know, for, for me, it was for what, four decades socialized and so enculturated within a white supremacist frame that every day it's about looking at and learning what have I internalized? What do I need to heal? Because healing is a part of it. And what do I need to do different action-wise? And, and I would also add that similar to what I said the last time, that it's also, it's going to involve independent work as well as it's going to involve community work. So that for me has been about journaling about some of these issues, right? And so I, I also have to think about my family of origin issues as well as institutional issues because they're not indivisible. Some of the ways that I've been parented has been through being within an oppressive society and them enacting those things, thinking that it's culture or all those kinds of things when really it is the long arm of white supremacy in our, in our family context, right? So really been journaling about those and engaging in healing processes as well as developing like developing my own spiritual practices around ancestral veneration and you know coming to know my own self my history my culture in those new and different ways and then coming into community with other people right and so that doesn't when i say community i don't necessarily mean that it has to be like an organized religion or an organized group. It just, I'm speaking of like-minded people who can feed each other. And so we can grow in those ways. What about you? Well, before we get into me, I mean, I think part of what one of the, you know, when I think about my, um, like when I think about the degemification process, right. I always talk about like the first phase of it, including sort of these four specific steps, right. One is being willing to recognize or identify that like you're a gem. Right. Or that like you've been socialized into the systems and like these, it, like you've been impacted. So I think this piece around seeing yourself and seeing the ways in which you've been like impacted feels like number one. Then the second piece is understanding like, like once like your why, but what drives and maintains your gemification. And I don't know that that's, I don't know if it's critical, but one of the things I was curious about as I heard you tell your story is saying, when you think about like your, how come, how come I was in fact like operating in this way, like sort of like, living in my own self, silence in my own voice. Like, what's your sense of like, like what was driving that for you? How would you- Survival. I think it was a survival mechanism. Well, both survival and conditioning, right? So I'd been in, in context influenced by white supremacy or steeped in white supremacy all of my life, K through 12 education. And I spent a lot K through, you know, K through 12. Then I got an undergraduate degree. Then I got a two years master's degree. Then I got a six year doctoral degree. Much of my life has been defined by academia and those concepts and the culture within academia. And so I had learned it. You know what I mean? Like this is this is the way to be, you, you know, production bigger is better and you know, more and all those kinds of things. I had begun to breathe and live and, you know, and really internalize and define myself against those standards and think it's what I should aspire to. And so learning was part of it, but it also survival, right? Because I've been told in so many ways, once you come in this context, leave your black self at the door in order to be able to navigate these spaces, because you'll be punished if you're not speaking how we speak, doing research and what we say to research, you know, all those kinds of things. So it was both that I, that that was the metric that I had learned to measure myself against. And it would be punished had I, when it, not, it would be, it had been punished 
when I was being more authentically me. I could give so many stories <laughs> about how, you know, there had been penalization for me being myself. Yep, yep. So really it's about this piece around um, protection and the like path to success, mm-hmm. right? And there's a, how much, how much, one of the other things I talk about, right, is like this piece around people needing to make space for all the different like feelings that will come up in the journey, right? The pieces around like, and I, the specific three that I, I really name are like shame, mm. guilt, and grief. Does that, when you kind of like look at your journey, does that, do those three feel resonant or are there, what will you describe that they're different? Like when you were in that, um, what's the name you call it? It's the um, encounter stage. Like what's the predominant, like what are the emotions that you think kind of accompany and you experience in your own journey? For me that it does, I don't, those, those emotions are more like in the second phase, because encounter, when you're really start, when your eyes are open and different things like that, you're, it's more, in, I'm more enraged, like, oh my God, all this time, you know, and then, and probably even more extreme in my thinking, like, you know, like, I'm, I mean, I was never one of these people who are like, kill whitey. <laughs> it's not consistent with my nature, but just more like, like really dismissive of anything like you're eccentric, like, what would you got to tell me? Like, you know, those kinds of things. And so it was more in the second part when I was really doing the unlearning. And like I said, it's hard for me to think because it's not been a linear process. It's been something that in my own personal development that I've come back to again and again and again, and with more richness each time. And so the grief is of the three emotions that you named stands out to me the most because it's, it's, there's a grief. And I think back to this. So I do, I did this course. It's an 11 week course that I did with in the work that I do. Right. And so one of the, it was the fourth week and I had asked the participants, this is just like two months ago. I had asked the participants, like, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? How are you? And this older man had said, I don't think I can make it all the way through this. And I was like, why? And he was like, I can't unsee now. And I'm just angry. And I don't trust anybody now. I'm working in a system with a lot of white folks. And I'm looking at everybody suspect now. Like, are you, you say, but are you really? And I think that that's like a real natural part of the process. But that's also a grieving of the, what I once thought that there was, the, the hope that I had in the people that I'm surrounded with, the systems that I'm embedded with. And also, what am I saying? Also, it was such a, it was a sadness, like, wow. Cause he was, an, he, was I, he had to be 50, late fifties, early sixties. And so like, I've been moving through this world, like everything was everything and everything ain't been everything, you know what I mean? And so there was a grief. And so, and then, and also this renegotiation of who can I trust, who are really my people. And I can definitely like relate to that because it was a whole new, especially during that time, 2020, that summer, when I was really looking at like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you talk a good talk because it, I was embedded in a department where people identified with being social justice oriented and doing race equity kind of like work and cultural studies and all those things like that. And yeah. And so th- that whole renegotiation of relationships with people and different things like that is, was part of my grief process. And the other one, shame. I don't know that I felt shame. I felt maybe the, t- the guilt piece that I felt and that was with me with, for the year following is that I had another, there was another Black woman professor who had left, you know, the year or two before me. 
And I saw what was going on and I saw the racialized dynamics and I I saw that she was enacting the role of Mammy, right? Which was the role that I then began to enact too, where you, I was doing all the nurturing. I was doing for all the students and and doing all the taking care of at my own expense. And it was, it was a, a role in this system so that everybody else could be free. I mean, just like slavery. Right. And so I felt, I felt a sense of guilt because I was like, I saw what she was going through, right? But I didn't say anything because I was newer in the system first and foremost, and I hadn't activated my voice. And notice I didn't say found because we don't find our voice, we have our voice, but it wasn't activated, right? And so I, I felt, it wasn't like, oh, like a, a deep sense of guilt where I was stuck in, in my place, but it was a sense of guilt that made me renegotiate how I'm gonna move forward in the, in the future. And I'm fortunate enough that we're still friends. I actually saw her Friday. And, but we've had conversations. I've been very, we've had conversations about what I should have done, what I could have done, you know, because, and I, and I there's so much to the, to, to the stories, right? But, but I, I had said when I left, if we said her name, if we explored why she left, y'all wouldn't have to say my name. I wouldn't be leaving this system. You know what I mean? But so those are the, the ways that it, like those words like reson or emotions resonate with me. No, I really appreciate that. Two, two things I want to just highlight. I really love this way that you're talking about it as like activating, activating voice, right? I know that I sort of, I describe it as like claiming voice, but I really like this piece around activating voice. So that, that just feels really resonant. And the second piece is, you know, the other thing that you're highlighting, which I think sometimes people don't always hold is like my, my fundamental belief is like all the different emotions that we experience, right? They, they have a real place for like why they are in us. And one of my like thing I just really appreciate you naming is that especially when we feel guilt, sometimes we can get like paralyzed in, in feelings of guilt and shame. But if we really pay attention, like, and especially for guilt, guilt is actually like really why, like it's when we think about how like the action that like we're oriented to when we feel guilt is to like, it's to move, to go repair, to do something. So I really love you just kind of highlighting that piece around like, it's like not wanting to do that again. Right. And this piece around like, how am I going to, and I would say for the same with shame, I think shame is harder to like, because guilt sometimes is other, the other, it's, it's other focused and it is pulling us. I think sometimes it can be easier for it to mobilize us to do and to, to go repair, to go like, like, how do I want to be different? Whereas in shame, it's easy to get caught, right? In like the like way we feel paralyzed when we feel shame. So anyway, I just wanted to highlight that piece around like the like place all these emotions have, but ultimately they are in us because it's designed to move us, to orient us, to do or behave a particular way, right? So being able to really take, it's, it takes wisdom to be able to listen to, right, the, to guilt and then have that orient you such that you have been able to have these like conversations um, with your friend now. And like, and I imagine that's been healing for both of you. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think so. Two thoughts. So the thinking about these emotions, I think that they will be person dependent, right? And it'll be state like where you are in your process dependent as well. Right. So had I been a person whose, whose eyes had not been open and I was less aware of these racialized dynamics, and myself as a racialized being and these contexts as racialized, I think I may have felt more shame, right? Because shame is global, where guilt is situation dependent. And this is how I acted here. And I didn't like that. But shame deals with your evaluation and your estimation of self and, and your worth, right? And so I imagine if I hadn't been on the journey or if I hadn't, 
I might have been more ashamed, like, wow, I'm, you know, really, really seeing. But but depending on where you are, the emotions, the experience of it, I think might be more or less of or, you know, maybe not experience. So I really like that. And yes, I definitely think I mean, I can imagine for her that because what happens in these contexts, too, is that when people are silent, like don't come to me after. Right. So each and every time I've spoken up and fought and you know, I fought a lot that last year that I was there and things are so much better. And I'm so happy for the people that have come after me and been able to benefit for how different things are. But each and every time I spoke up, people would privately send a message or an email. Wow. I love that you said that. Thank you so much. Oh my God. You have so much courage, bro. Say this publicly, like say this, support me publicly. So I'm not looking like the crazy lady making all the noise, right? Like it doesn't, it, it, yes. Good. I feel this. I do feel supported. I'm not going to lie. It feels good to be validated in that way, but it's not going to affect social change when you do it privately. So, and so w- with, with my friend who I'm thinking of, I de- I definitely did it publicly because on my way out about a year ago, this time I, I sent a long email and I called her name and I made, I said, I said, she's been here 20 years. Y'all know who she is? No, y'all don't say hi to her either. And you know, all these kinds of things. And so but I, I definitely believe that it felt vindicating and validating for her, even though I know that the system has still harmed her so much without them seeking to repair or to acknowledge what they've done. I still know that there are some things that would need to be healed. But I, I know that having that very public support like that, I think that it that for any of us, it would be healing. Yep. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so with you around this piece around being over. I mean, I feel like we have, I can, we can hold empathy for folks where you are in your own journey that the only way you know how to reach is to reach out privately and, and the piece around, I think the piece that we, I think I would invite people to think about is like, and I think this is a place where I think whether it's shame or guilt, because I do think that even shame can be like, I really fundamentally believe that all these emotions, they have a place. They really have a place. And I think shame is intended for us where it's like a a self-evaluation piece. But it's if you really think about what shame wants to do is to force us to do it differently and not do that anymore. Right. But we get paralyzed. A lot of times we get paralyzed in it because we don't have strategies or ways to know how to tend to ourselves when we feel shame. Right. And how we are able to be like loved up on or accepted. Right. When we own what it is that we feel shame about and we can be in community to say, and you get to try again. And you guess it, you, you know what I'm saying? But I, go ahead. No, I do. I, I, but I want to, I'm, I'm thinking that we might be using shame different, right? So, because I think to feel ashamed is situational, but to feel shame is, is very, you know, it's, it's more constitutional and more global about who you are. Because something that I often say is that shame is not a transformative teacher, right? And so, yes, I believe that some things need to be canceled. Some people need to be canceled. But that as a teacher is not, you know, you know, is not effective because, you know, what it is, is it keeps you stuck. Right. And so I'm not, so how are you using shame? Right. Well, I think when we get in semantics around shame versus ashamed, but the feeling of shame, whether that is a pervasive feeling that stays with one all the time, or it is a situational feeling that is experienced related to something one has done. I think the piece I'm saying is, A, we need strategies to be able to take care of ourselves when we are in that place, right? One of the things I thought you said was really, 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 really important is that when we don't hold context around how 
we've been socialized or how powerful our socialization is or how institutions have affected us, it is easy for us to see it as about a defectiveness within us. That is why we are playing and moving the way we are, when in reality, it's actually been because of the... So I think the point you're making is saying, depending on where we are in our journey, right, really influences that, like, do, am I going to feel shame about this thing? Or is it, is it guilt? Is it a different emotion that sort of shows up? So I do think that that context matters for sure. So yeah, I think I, I do think it matters. The, but I think the piece that I think I was just trying to call out is that, is how much, how, how necessary, like, I think the piece I'm, like I'm ultimately trying to call out is the, like, one of the things I think we as folks of color, Black folks, um, do is we can be dismissive about our emotional experience, mm-hmm. right? And I think this piece I'm trying to kind of open up space for is saying, for folks is saying, when you are on your liberation journey, I think we are going to, there are going to be constantly different emotions that are coming up throughout the entire journey that we need to start to build our capacity to like tolerate and know what to do with, right? And even the most paralyzing, um, what did you call it? I said, it's not a trans, it's not transformational feeling like shame, for example, whether that's a construct, as in like, whether that's a pervasive experience of shame or a situational feeling of shame. The thing that I believe that, that helps us move through shame is actually the opposite of it to be a sense of acceptance, right? So that which goes back to this piece around like community, community care and this piece around being in like finding your people, right? Who can see you and hold you and support you, support you through it. So I think that that's the piece I think I'm just trying to name is, is making space for the emotional experience that we're going to have through this journey. And then also one of the strategies that we got to put in our pocket of how we tend to it is how we get supported with community. Like if we bring that forward, that folks can, can hold that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It does. And it makes sense because shame is an isolating emotion, right? When we feel shame, what we tend to do is go, you know, go high. And because you don't feel like you're worthy of, of the look of the, you know, being held in that way. And so it does, it does definitely make sense. That's right. The other piece I want to just flag out, like name out too, though, is the piece that you were saying earlier around, like how critical, if in fact we want things to change, how much we, how much, when we see someone taking a risk to show up in a more liberated way. And, and we can all feel inspired by it and go high five them quietly about it. Right. But this piece around us, like throwing our, like risking, risking on their behalf and on our behalf as well of like powering them up in the moment, because like two voices are so much better than one voice, three voices to say me too, me too. Right. Those voices, like, I just think there's a way in which one of the things, I mean, if we think about it, like white supremacy culture, individualism is like one of the, the like symptoms and the ways that we're always trying to like move in this world. But one of the things I think we've forgotten that is helpful for helping us get into connection with our power is really this piece around like the power of collective voice and our need to like really lean into that and organize to, to, to get, you know what I'm saying? So like, I just feel like that's the other piece I just wanted to highlight is, is that piece you were saying around like folks who like come give you high fives on the, on the low, but then didn't, but were present and didn't say, and didn't say anything. I definitely, yeah, definitely agree with it. And I, I can't think of it. I think of it collectively as much as I think of it as an individual kind of process. Yeah. And so, you know, so, so that part is, is uh, totally necessary. It's also very validating in, for the person who is in their process, right. Is, is to, 
to be able, because if, if I'm going to continue the fight, you know what I mean? For you to do so and do that with me publicly, I'm encouraged to do the fight because I feel less alone. You know what I mean? Because, and I feel partnered with in this journey and that communalism, that other centeredness is just as important. You know what I mean? Just as what we lend, the strength that we lend in that is just as important as that individual process of coming to, coming to voice. And it helps the person who then supported too, right? So you could only take that step because the other person risks. Right. So it's easier for you to take that step. And then you taking that step is easier for them to make that step and so on and so forth, too. So, I mean, and when we think about change, a lot of times people think about organizational and systems level change as originating top down. Right. That's that's not how change most effectively originates. Right. Because one is hierarchical and two, they haven't accessed the voice of those within the system at all levels. And so the change is temporary and doesn't include the voice and perspective of those lower in the hierarchy, right? And so what, what, what change really happens when there are small fires, right? Little fires everywhere equals one huge big fire, right? So small pockets, so you and me with an institution, them and them, you know, small groups moving forward, and then eventually everybody has to hear, right? And so, and even if it's like larger groups, like 10 people gather, you know what I mean? That, and, and, and having both a top up and a bottom down that's when institutional organizational change really happens. Percent, thousand percent. Yeah. How we how we do with time, part of what I'm curious about is like, you know, I feel like part of, I know my story is a lot more long-winded, <laughs> long-winded because give my own like way of like expressing myself. Uh, how we do with time in terms of like, do we have time to tell it in this episode? Or we got to save it for next episode. I think we should restart in next episode, but this was a good conversation. Uh, always, always, Dr. Marissa Williams, always. All right. So with that, thank you so much for listening to us, y'all. Um, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you've loved what we had to say, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Dr. Narissa, and you can find me on IG at Dr. Narissa Williams. And I'm Dr. Buki. You can find me on IG at the official Dr. Buki. You can also stay abreast of our latest offerings at our website, RadicalRemembering.com.